I think there's always this mythology of people being born leaders and also a, a very much the myth of the single guy at the top setting directions for everyone. And so both of those myths are wrong. And I think actually a key principle of the McNulty Leadership Program at Wharton is that leadership can be learned. This is Forces for Good, a podcast from B-Lab, the nonprofit network powering the global B Corp movement. I'm your host, Irving Chan Gomez. Driving positive impact for people and the planet takes collaboration, innovation, and inspiration. That's why we're partnering with Danone North America, one of the largest certified B corporations, to feature live conversations from the 2023 Aspen Ideas Festival. We're bringing you to the middle of this festival. So in the background, you may hear people and vehicles passing by, the occasional smoothie bike running, and the joyful voices of our fellow attendees. This special series will share groundbreaking ideas and stories about putting purpose into action. The McNulty Foundation honors leaders around the world who are creating lasting change. And who better to tell us about groundbreaking ideas and stories than the leader of the McNulty Foundation herself, Anne Welsh McNulty. But we're not recording our podcast in an isolated studio. I've headed all the way to Colorado with our producers and partners to attend the Aspen Ideas Festival a festival in which the McNulty Foundation plays a big role. And what better way to celebrate being here than to bring some of the things we've seen and heard into our conversations. I attended a session where one of the speakers told a story. And the point of the story was to ask, who are you? So as I told Anne, I am and always will be the little kid at the adult table trying his absolute best to be quiet. So I asked, who is Anne? So I grew up outside Philadelphia in a big Irish Catholic family mm-hmm. and uh, relatively strict, focused on education. And my parents had come from, you know, very, uh, not poor backgrounds, but very working class backgrounds. And my Mother, in particular, was very focused on education, and she had mm-hmm. never gotten to go to college. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. she just recently passed away at 98 and a half. Oh, but sorry. for her whole life, she was mad about the college thing. So, <laughs> so I think she pushed all of us, two boys, four girls, but especially the girls, mm-hmm. to be somebody and to achieve something. So I mm-hmm. definitely took that from her. In addition, my Irish grandmother was with us often, and she would tell us, make yourself useful. Mm-hmm. Now, she usually meant like fold the laundry or help fix <laughs> dinner or something practical. But I kind of took that from her as a slogan for life, you know, mm-hmm. and that every setting, there are ways in which you can be helpful to others. I think I read, I believe it was at Philanthropy Magazine, there was this article like talking about your experience, a bit about le- your life. And there was one piece about, I think it was the Villanova Center mm-hmm. that's named after you. And you mentioned like, you know, like women should step up, have their name out there and take credit. And 
I'll say this, like I have a nine year old niece now. So she's like quickly approaching her teens. And I'm just like the world that we live in and also like how things are still not equal for everyone and how mm -hmm. she will face challenges. And I was thinking like, that's right, because like any other man would have been celebrated for that. And we mm -hmm. ask women to be, you know, like maybe more modest or something mm -hmm. when it's like it's just a reflection of your work and your accomplishments. So and I say this or pick this a specific industry because of like the, the influence that that had. But what is your perspective on how women can be trailblazers in the world of finance? Well, in the world of finances is can be particularly difficult just because it often requires really long hours. So mm -hmm. there's partly personal, you know, the Sheryl Sandberg lean in, which is still true, like demand to have a seat at the table. But then there is also structural things like firms need to be more flexible and not require huge amounts of time at the time when your kids are little. You right. know, so there, there's some fundamental things still with finance and law firms and others that that mitigate against women really being successful or staying with those careers. So part of me says, well, to be a trailblazer, put up, you know, deal with it, figure out ways to have other people help you do it. And then there's, you know, start your own business, which is, you know, ultimately a better solution. But as I said, it requires both the organizations to be more flexible and more men to take those flexible options, yeah. as well as, you know, working hard and being pushy. Yeah, definitely. Also, I think a call to action, not just to the individuals, but also mm -hmm. to the companies and organizations mm -hmm. that should strive to make those these workspaces more friendly and like mm -hmm. accommodating. And it's not only for women, like yes. everyone takes advantage of more flexible schedules to be with mm -hmm. their families, etc. So it's something for for everyone in the end, too. Yeah. And the pandemic has showed us a lot of that, too, hasn't it? That yeah. everything doesn't have to be done in the office. You know, at all times, everyone doesn't have to be there. It doesn't have to be as strict a protocol for what work means and, and how it gets done. Right. And my first job was with Coopers and Lyburn, great accounting firm, part of the big eight way back then mm -hmm. in Philadelphia, oh, wow. which was their headquarters. So in that year, I think because they had to, they hired five women out of the 50 young people who started as new accountants. And uh, during that year, I had different experiences where one particular, you work in teams in public accounting. So one of the supervisors on my team would always tell me, you're taking a job away from a man who's going to need it to support his family. So I was like, really? At 22, he's supporting his family right. with his job? But, <laughs> and he would also say when a client was there, doesn't she have great legs for an accountant? Oh my goodness. So as a result, what I did, and probably because of this training for my parents, you know, I went to talk to someone more senior and said, you know, by the way, this person really doesn't appreciate me having him on the team. And, you know, can I switch teams or something? He said, no, but, you know, and they said, no, you know, this is, he's that way with everybody. I was like, well, I don't think so. Mm. And then at the end of the first year, I realized that of the five of us who started, the five women, two had quit and two had been fired. So I was the only survivor at the end of the first year. Right. And it partly maybe because I raised the flag early that uh, right. this is a problem. And I think just because I was persistent. It certainly wasn't that I was particularly great at public accounting. Uh, but I think it was just persistence. And I realized, too, that I had never really talked to the other women about it. Mm. So I had no idea they had issues or what was going on. So it was a good lesson for me going forward. 
I, after that, was always very conscious, mm-hmm. talking to other women, finding out what's going on, you know, helping one another in our careers. I want to ask you a little bit about the McNulty Foundation and the work you do through it. We had said, John and I had set up the McNulty Foundation when my first child was born. And so, uh, who was Johnny after his dad, as a way of, you know, for us, you know, consciously saying this is an important thing to us. And so that was way back in 1985. And, you know, for the initial years, you know, we did what everybody does. We gave to our colleges. We gave to mm-hmm. institutions in our community. We gave to our friends, charities, you know, kind of the regular route of philanthropy on a small scale. And then after Goldman went public and it was a much more significant infusion, then we went to creating programs on our own and doing more significant things. So, for instance, the McNulty Leadership Program at Warden. And then later, of course, our flagship program is the McNulty Prize at the Aspen Institute. Okay. So the evolution was was a part-time but real commitment of ours and then became much more significant. And particularly when John and I left Goldman together, then it became almost a full-time pursuit for both of us. Mm. <laughs> I think that there's like these two approaches that you mentioned. One of them is the leadership programs at colleges and the other one is seating leaders themselves. Mm. Why did you choose these two approaches? Part of it is that history that you mentioned, so that we, because part of the story is that John passed away suddenly four years after we had both left Goldman. And so as a result of that very tragic event for me and our family, but part of what we did in the year and years after was try to translate that into a much more positive thing, you know, mm. and create leadership programs which were modeled on his leadership abilities and his ability to mentor people. Yeah. And I think underlaying those two approaches, you've described something along the lines of wanting to be in the position of creating opportunity Mm -hmm. for others and giving people agency to do things for themselves, which I think is really powerful. And I want to dig a little deep in this concept around opportunity Mm -hmm. based on your background, based on your experiences What's your perspective on opportunity? Yeah, I think that I was very aware, John and I were both very aware, that we were lucky, like in terms of the ability we had to go to college, the economic environment when we were coming out. I mean, we really came out of Wharton at the beginning of the biggest bull market that the country had ever had. So, of course, we were brilliant and we worked hard. But there's also that recognition that, Sometimes you are lucky and it's not just you and right. that, you know, other people don't always have the same circumstances. So I think we are very aware of that. A lot of what we do is trying to create or support those who are helping others, but also creating agencies for others and very aware of the closer we can get to the actual communities, the better. And, and our McNulty Prize winners really, really do that. I think that's really powerful, especially thinking about the role that philanthropy plays. Mm-hmm. I did development for studies and that's a big composition of like just understanding that people have agencies and almost the realization that we all want to live full, healthy, happy lives and we'll do what's in our best interest to achieve that within our circumstances. So I think it's really, really powerful. And you're talking about like some of the individuals who work through the McNulty Prize. Can you tell us just a bit more what is the prize and perhaps give an example of the type of mm-hmm. individuals that are being awarded the prize? 
We have had actually several B lap winners. Yeah. Yes. The most famous, of course, is Warby Parker, mm-hmm. who, you know, I always have Warby Parker glasses. I'm a huge supporter <laughs> of them. And they, of course, I think they won our prize in 2018. And they were wildly successful then. And of course, now, or, you know, even yeah. more so. But they're just such a stellar example of that principle of doing well by doing good mm-hmm. and having their whole business support that concept. So yeah. they're, they're a great example. At this point now, we recognize three winners each year. And last year, one of our three winners was also a B Corp. Oh, it's uh, Source Global, which is a for-profit company, but is a benefit mm-hmm. corporation, which allows them to do more they could do as a traditional business. Right. And their main product was uh, invented by their founder, Cordy Friesen, is a solar panel that produces clean drinking water from mm. the air. So it can be used in extremely dry conditions, oh, such wow. as a tribal reservation or, you know, remote part of the desert anywhere. So extremely exciting. And, you know, he's very dynamic. And I, I love that it is a benefit corp, that he set it up that way. And so they can various pro-social arrangements for their business in different remote locations. And so I think it gives them, you know, more power and ways to do things than they would if they were just a regular corporation. Right, right. And I know the prize is done in collaboration with the Aspen Institute, mm-hmm. which we're part of right now, which makes me think we're at the Aspen Ideas Festival. What ideas do you bring to it? What ideas do you hope to, you know, inspire others or what ideas are inspiring you as part of the festival today? Oh, thanks. Well, it is a real privilege to come. And I'm a trustee of the Institute, so I've had the privilege of coming for many years and seeing mm-hmm. the different evolutions And we usually like to bring some of our winners here as well so that they get a chance to interact with everyone else. But really, it brings together such a great variety of people from the sciences and the humanities and medicine and arts. And so and they have every hour they have three different things going on on campus that you can choose. Do I want to go hear about neurotechnology? Do we Mm want to hear about nutrition in the emerging world? And so I find it just very stimulating. And I try to follow the practice of going to presentations that I don't really know that much about. So, for instance, I would not go to finance presentations generally. I will go like, what the hell is happening in the economy? But generally, I wouldn't go to more details because I'll be in the audience thinking, well, no, this or that. Whereas if I go to like neurotechnology, I'm like, wow, you're doing that. And how does it work? (laughs) So it is unique. And we'll bring other people from our foundation with us, too, so that they can also interact with this great group of people that are here. Yeah, I think that's been my approach, too. Like, just this week, I'm like, the sessions that I know the least about, like, those are the ones that I want to go. Or that even, like, just by the title and reading about the speaker, that I'm like, I'm intrigued by this. Mm -hmm. Let's see. And I think reflecting a bit on, like, the space and the sessions and the concept behind it, I think it's that wide range of ideas mm-hmm. both like people getting exposed to and learning but also like trying to apply them to the way that they are doing their work mm-hmm. is that makes this really really interesting and fascinating as well as that like relationship building where it's so easy to simply walk up to someone and strike a conversation yes. if you're just willing to take that step i feel like there's so many experts about everything that every person here is like a walking expert 
Yes, that that part is great. We also have a number of young scholars who come, you know, by scholarships from their high schools around the country who were just fabulous. And the other thing we have here is we have name tags that not only have our name, but what organization we're from. Right. Now, I personally wish we all wore name tags all the time since I have a tendency to forget people's names. Yes. But it also gives <laughs> you this introduction to say, oh, you're with such and such a company. Right. Tell me more about that. Right. So right. It's, it, it really encourages that kind of dialogue. And I, part of our whole philosophy here is dialogue across differences, you know, that, that you have a setting where you have a panel and they shouldn't all agree. And then when you're meeting people, you should meet people who don't necessarily agree with everything that you think. Correct. And, you know, and that's part of the whole energy and part of the whole purpose for this Ideas Festival is to share ideas across all different kinds of people. Amazing. I wanted to go back a little about some of the work that you do with especially leadership development for individuals through the prize, for example. And you've talked in different ways about this concept of moral courage yes, as a common denominator for a good leader, especially those that are seeking to create social change. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a bit more? What, what is this concept and how did you come about it? Well, I think it's, it's probably that we recognize it in the fellows from around the world, that mm -hmm. this was a common factor, that they, in difficult circumstances, you know, were willing to step up and do new things and, you know, rally people around them. And, and many times they're doing something which is not popular or not accepted. Right. It's really being moral and having courage and that combination is very powerful. And I think we see it in our various leaders. I did want to talk briefly about the other two winners from this year, uh -huh. and yes. particularly one of them, because I think she exemplifies some of what you're talking about with equity. Her venture is called Magnolia Mothers Trust, and it was one of the first guaranteed income programs in the United States. Mm. And it gives single women who are held of household in public housing in Jackson, Mississippi, a thousand dollars a month for a year. And that this has proved to be the most effective help getting people out of poverty. Mm -hmm. And even though her program only goes for a year, you know, she may find that the women will stop working to low level jobs and try to get a better job or take a course or pay down debt. So even that has made a very big difference. And she is just a phenomenally charismatic person as well. And then our other person is similarly very impressive. She funded, uh, started a company called Adesia, and she creates this fortified peanut butter bar that can treat and actually reverse malnutrition. And it also gives parents more agency because they're not just taking children to a doctor and being treated, but the doctor will actually give them the bars and they can take their kids home and treat it. And It's an amazing turnaround, actually very effective. So that's why for us, the last year we had the guy taking water from the air, uh -huh. the person giving these magical bars and create around the world to help malnutrition, and she's, which she says is a solvable problem. So courage and optimism. And then Magnolia Mothers trying to fight poverty by the direct guaranteed income program. I think that example of Magnolia Mothers It's so interesting because I think it connects even to your own philosophy mm -hmm. about opportunity and how a lot of where we are depends on circumstance and this recognition, like in the way that you support leaders directly mm -hmm. of like, you know, yep. like creating that circumstance so like they can continue doing the work. I think 
it's an example also of like how creating better circumstances for mothers in this case mm -hmm. can really change and create new opportunities for them. Yeah, I think it is a very good example where you let people make their own decisions. You know, right. that's what has a lot of appeal to me of that whole program is that the mothers, and it's mostly mothers, you know, know what their biggest needs are. Yes. So, you know, we don't need to tell them, oh, here, we're going to give you credit to go to a back-to-school program. You know, no. Right. If they want to go back to school, they should apply the money for that. Yeah. So it's very powerful from that point of view. Yeah. I agree. Yeah. And it's a really interesting conversation that I think it's happening a lot right now, especially in the philanthropy yeah. world, about what is the most impactful way to do that and, yeah, create a better return while also create an agency and going back mm. to that concept, creating opportunities for people. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So we're seeking out leaders and giving them agency, including, so we have, you know, a financial prize over, over, uh, it was paid out over two years, but that's not actually even the main thing. The main thing is figuring out how to amplify their message, you know, how to give them a platform, how to support them. Because we're at the Aspen Ideas Festival, let's take a short break from this conversation to hear from other attendees. We asked, how can business have a positive impact on society? Here's one that echoes Anne's point. I believe that businesses can take a positive lead to society by incorporating people within society to bring in new ideas, new opinions, and rich diversity into these problems. Businesses should use their platforms to further elevate themselves, but more to elevate the society that they're working within. You have a long history with us at B-Lab and the work that we do with businesses, obviously also working with businesses yourself. What do you think is the potential for this community? The community of B Corps is one, but more broadly, the community of businesses that are starting to think differently about the role that they play and the impact they can have. Mm -hmm. Well, we love B Lab. We first uh, met them in 2008 mm -hmm. when uh, the three founders and I were all much younger. Uh, <laughs> and at that time, they had this great concept of changing the way everyone thinks about corporations. And at that time, they had gotten a grand total of six states to pass laws allowing the formation of B Corps. Mm -hmm. And then they won our McNulty Prize several years later when they were then somewhat bigger. And now, of course, they're enormous. And I think what they did was alert all of us to the fact that there is not one form in which to be a company. And that shareholder primacy, which is, you know, I learned in business school, everybody learns in business school, the most important thing is the shareholder. But that, in fact, is not a law of nature. There are all kinds of successful cooperatives. And even in other countries like Germany, there's also certain mandated level of work and control. But we tend to have blinders here in the U.S. about companies can look like. And so the B Corp movement, and it really has been a movement, has, has redefined a new path for people who are running business to make their businesses reflect their values. Yeah, I joined about seven years ago. And it, it felt like it was right at that cusp of like growth. Mm -hmm. And to see, just to reflect on those last seven years is like the amount of momentum, not only as an organization, which obviously is important, but 
I think it gives me hope because it's like the people are starting to think about these more generally. So it's not longer a niche thing. Like yes. it's something that more and more businesses are starting to talk more about. And I think that's powerful. I think reflecting on you, I mean, my God, you understand businesses <laughs> and how they work and how they could work too. Some of the challenges that they face and like how the challenges, but also the opportunities that they can create. What was it like pivoting from like the business world into philanthropy? That's an interesting question because I think part of it is just kind of style, culture, and part of it is almost semantic. You know, mm. like even like a very basic example than when I would be making calls to people after I was on the not-for-profit size and they'd say, oh, I'll get right back to you. Well, at Goldman, that would mean like in an hour. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Maybe in a day. And what they meant was in a couple of weeks, you know, whenever. And so I had to learn to be, you know, much more specific about what my time expectations were. There's part of that intensity of going from one environment to the other. But on the other hand, you know, they might, the people on the not-for-profit side mm-hmm. might be more thoughtful about it and mm-hmm. come back with, you know, more nuanced interpretation of whatever we were trying to address. And what we were trying to address is usually complicated and complex. Uh, mm-hmm. So time was okay. <laughs> As I said, yeah. part of it was that. And, you know, we didn't, I went from being part of a very big organization to our own little organization. Um, you've worked with many amazing leaders. And importantly, I think something that really took away was that it's not just something that we're born with. Mm. It's a set of skills that we can develop, right? And that like, we need to constantly be flexing that muscle. So what message would you give to our listeners who are business leaders, but also not just C-suite executives, also people within their organizations that are trying to enact change, that are trying to create opportunities? What is your message to them? Well, I, I agree with your point that leadership is not necessarily innate. I think there's always this mythology of people being born leaders and also a very much the myth of the single guy at the top setting directions for everyone. And so both of those myths are wrong. Mm -hmm. Leadership can be learned, you Mm -hmm. know, that it's not just you giving the dictation of what should happen next, what should happen in the next five years, but bringing in all the different voices and creating a space for them within your company or your enterprise, your not-for-profit is part of the real role of leadership now. Well, and thank you so much for lending your voice, lending your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. And again, thank you for all the work that you do and your support to B-Lab as well. Thank you. This is a special series from Forces for Good, featuring conversations recorded at the 2023 Aspen Ideas Festival and in partnership with Danone. If you'd like to learn more about B Corps and purpose-driven companies, visit bcorporation.net and listen to the rest of our season. We'll have more episodes about how business can drive positive impact and be a force for good. Please subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Your ratings and reviews help Forces for Good reach new audiences. So we thank you for your support. For more opportunities to engage with us, follow us on social media. The 
views and opinions expressed are those of the interviewees and do not reflect the positions or opinions of the producers or any affiliated organizations. This podcast was brought to you by B-Lab and Danone. Our team includes Sherry Jordan and Erin Brooks. Forces for Good is produced by Human Group Media. I'm your host, Irving Chan Gomez. Thanks for listening. And I look forward to catching you in the next episode.